You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, which is an important part of the story. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. At the very least, I know that all of you will know the final verse. In John chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, and we can say it together when it comes up. So anticipate that very fun moment that we'll have. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Remember last week we talked about hiding. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly. And I'm like, Jesus, stop saying truly, truly, because nothing you say makes sense. Every time you say truly, truly, everybody's confused all the time. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he says something that everybody understands. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I'm so glad Nicodemus was smart, because none of us have to feel bad for not understanding what Jesus says. I thought that was funny. I guess all of you are more intellectual than I am, and I apologize. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And we can all say this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lent series is called Becoming More Aware, and we're talking about removing those things during the 40 days of Lent that keep us from not creating the glory of God, but from seeing the glory of God that is always existing around us. We don't conjure God up like some kind of Christian seance. He conjures us up. Our role is to not get his glory to show up. Our role is to live in such a way where the things that keep us from seeing his ever-existing glory are removed. 
so that we can see what always is. And I don't even want to say that. When you see God's glory, you see things as they are. When we're not noticing his glory, we are seeing things as we perceive them, but not always as they are. Last week was the cosmic idea with Adam and Eve in the garden that when we sin and make a mistake, we have two go-to moves. We either cover ourselves and fix it ourselves, or we go and we hide behind the very things that we were tasked with serving and protecting. And today, we will even see how we hide behind other people and put them in harm's way when we're trying to hide from our sin. God's presence exists in our sin, which is why we can repent at all. Last week we said, if sin separated us from God, then Adam and Eve wouldn't have had anything to hide from in the garden. If sin separated us from God, guess who would not have been coming toward Adam and Eve after they sinned? God. They wouldn't have heard the sound of God coming towards them in the cool of the day, when they sinned, if sin separated us from God. Sin doesn't separate us from God. Sin makes us not want to be near a God who refuses to be separated from us. It's on our end. We treat God like he sees sin and says, forget you. We see our sin and say, forget you, to him. And he says, you cannot forget me. I will always keep coming. I will never stop coming. I will always find you. We feel separated from God when we sin because we don't like to be near him when we sin. But he doesn't care. He will always mind your business, whether you like it or not. His grace is why we can repent at all. We have taught that when you repent, then you will be united to God again. I can't repent if God isn't there because I have nothing to turn to if God isn't there. I can turn from my sin, but what am I turning to? Nothing. But if he's there, then I can repent. Because if he's not there, I just pull 360, and I'm back to what makes sense. It's when we turn from our sin that we need something behind us. Like John in the book of Revelation heard a voice from behind him, because we need to repent and turn. And there he is. His grace is why we can repent And he covers us because he's merciful. Jesus is the voice that Adam and Eve heard in the garden. And now we know what Adam and Eve didn't know. When we sin and we feel the presence of God descend on our life, we don't have to hide because the voice we hear walking toward us is Jesus. And Jesus is the lamb that was slain since the foundation of the world for the sins of the world. And so now we can stand in front of him in our guilt and in our shame and in our vulnerability, and he will help cover us, take off what we're covering ourselves with, and clothe us with his very self. This is good news. So last week I tried like a few times as sermon illustrations to hide behind the pulpit, but when you're a certain size, you can't hide behind things that are that small. But now that we've come out from hiding, the question is, well, what do we do? What do we do when we come out from hiding? God calls Abraham to go. I want, to, I want you to hear this. Legalism is any time we remain in a single place out of fear of failing 
or feel fear of losing the consistent comfort that we have. Legalism is any time we set up a system around us that keeps us in a single rhythm and in a single place because we're either afraid to go fail again or we're afraid to leave the comfort and rhythm that we have found. So it's the two reasons why people don't like change. They don't like change on the one hand because it's like we finally found a place where we're not messing up. As soon as we change, we're going to mess up again, which is true. And then other people like it because I'm just so, like, this is finally so right. Like, why do we need to change? I feel like I can actually predict my life. And when you can predict your life, you don't really need to commune with God at all. You just expect him to be at the next predictable place. That's legalism. Legalism seeks to keep you where you are under the false pretense of safety and control. So legalism isn't don't drink, don't smoke. Those things exist because of legalism. Rules, overt rules. How many here were raised? Actually, let's not do that. There are, there are no, I'm serious. There are, there are overt rules that we place on ourselves, that we place on our children, that we place on our churches that are meant to keep the church in a certain place or the child in a certain place or ourself in a certain place. And oftentimes there's a lot of wisdom in there. This is why it's complicated. It's not the rules that make it legalistic. It's why we're applying them in the first place that makes it legalistic. So there's no bashing to be done in our past here. We just need to keep uncovering our intentions, right? And so the reality is if we're doing it out of a fear of moving forward out of, into new constructs or if we're doing it out of the ease of comfort that we have now, that's legalism. And we'll stay hidden. Abraham was called to leave his idolatry, which is easy for us to understand. Nicodemus was called to leave his righteousness and his goodness. The two extremes. It's easy when we say, come out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Come out from being an idol maker, Abraham. Well, we all cheer that one. But when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to leave everything that you know about Torah and about the way that you think you're righteous. Well, that's a lot more terrifying to a Christian. Nicodemus is the sign of a person who has the right template but is still, in fact, hiding. Because if Nicodemus' righteousness was real, he wouldn't need to covertly go to Jesus. He would have openly went to him. But he's preserving something and trying to get Jesus included in on it. Leading up to Abraham's call and leading up to the call of Nicodemus to leave what they know. Abraham is called to leave a place. Nicodemus is called to leave a mode of thinking. Leading up to their story, the biblical story behind them is not too helpful in making them feel comfortable about moving forward. So let's just stick with Abraham for a second. Genesis 12, Abraham is told, go and move forward out of this place into the land where I will show you. And Abraham has a story behind him that Genesis chapter 1 through 11 does not bode well for Abraham trying something new. Let's quickly shoot through Genesis chapter 3 through 11 very, very fast. Adam and Eve. Abraham is called to move. He's called to go someplace new. And he has a past that is producing fear. 
a past that is telling him, here's what's going to happen the moment you try to move. You finally come out from hiding, you finally made your way out, and now you're going to move, and there's that feeling of our past that says you're just going to do it again, only every time you mess up, it's going to be worse than the last time. What is behind Abraham that could be producing fear in Abraham's life to make Abraham afraid to move forward? It starts with Adam and Eve. Perfection doesn't mean things will go well. How discouraging is that? That's really the only one you need, except i got to fill up 45 minutes, so I'm going to put other ones in there for you, because no one would want a really short sermon. Perfection doesn't mean things go well. Well, if perfection doesn't mean things go well, guess what? They're not going to go too well. You didn't need me for that. You did not need me to make that point. It's fairly obvious. Adam and Eve show that when things are absolutely perfect and there are no crying babies and no arguments and really like no traffic jams or cars breaking down, or new tires to put on, or having to go to church, or any of those things. You're still going to mess up. So when won't we mess up? Cain and Abel reveal that anger can thwart you when you realize that others' lives are going too well. I know no one wants to raise their hand about these things, and so I won't ask you, but have you ever busted your behind to do exactly what you feel the Lord is telling you to do, and then somebody else just shows up, and everything starts to go really, really well for them, and it's not going so well for you? And you're like, why? I get mad at Sophia for saying why all the time. She doesn't know when to stop saying why, and I am enslaved by it because I have to keep answering. And I go down these rabbit trails that start to make no sense to me. And then I'm wondering what I'm saying. And then Jacqueline starts to say, why are you still doing that? And I'm like, everyone stop saying why to me. You know I can't not answer. This isn't fair. I'm addicted to this. But then when I read this story, I feel Cain's pain. Trust me, I do. He is a tiller of the ground. It's what he does. He produces fruit. He brings the fruit. And God's like, nah. What else could I bring? It's what you gave me to do. Why? Then he kills him. He kills his brother because of it. So Adam and Eve, perfection doesn't mean things go well. Cain and Abel, anger that other li- others' lives are going too well. Noah and the ark, fresh start at things going well. But then, we finally, have any, has anybody done like the, you know what, this is going to be the first of the month. I am, spring is coming. I'm clean slate. I'm going to get it right this time. And every time we hit rock bottom, we say, that's the last time I'm going to hit rock bottom. And we start this whole new thing. We buy new journals and new pens. And we, you know, we, we start taking showers again. And we do all of these things. And we're so motivated for six days. And then we, it's just, we don't stop messing up. It's so unbelievable to me that Noah comes out of the ark. Not many generations removed from Adam and Eve who failed in a garden. And he fails in a garden. Of all the places to mess up, 
It's proof that we just go right back to our mess. The dog does return to its vomit. Things were going so well, I finally had a fresh start. Everyone in my life died except for my favorite people. And we still mess it up again. The Tower of Babel. Things were going so well. God says, those people down there are unified. Is that bad? They're building something with the abilities I gave them. Is that bad? Let's go down there and confuse their language. They're building a building for their own name and not for mine. How are they supposed to know that, though? There's no writings yet. Let's go down there and confuse their language. How annoying must that day have been when you swear that you're saying, bring up the bricks? It must have felt like they were all talking to three and four-year-olds. Bring up the bricks. Bring them. Bring them. Get back. Bring them. Bring them. And they're down there like, what is he saying? Why are you yelling? Well, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm saying bring the bricks. What are you saying? I don't understand what you're saying. Why are they making weird sounds at me? That must have been absolutely tragic, but definitely funny. Now we have to get serious. Everybody, rein it in. And then, perfection doesn't mean things go well. Your life could be going well and see that someone else's is going better. Fresh start, and you mess up again. Finally get everyone on the same page, and it turns out you were wrong and didn't know it. And then tragedy. Abraham's father, Terah. Let's look at a few verses here that talk about Terah's life. This is an interesting concept. Now, these are the generations of Terah. This is Abram's father, Abraham's father. Terah fathered Abraham, Naor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. So Terah had three children, Abraham, Naor, and Haran. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Terah, Abraham's father, lost his son tragically. Abraham lost his brother. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson. So now Terah is getting up to leave after his son died. And he took his grandson, Lot, Sarai, his daughter-in-law, which was... Abraham's wife, and they, listen to this, they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to a city called Haran, they settled there. Terah's son Haran died. Terah goes to move into the land of Canaan, and he gets to a city called Haran, and he stays there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. It's very possible that Terah was supposed to be the Abraham that we know of in the Bible. He was on his way to Canaan, which is the place that God eventually brings Abraham. Terah was on his way to the promised land. 
but he stops in the city that's named after his son who died, which means he settled in the place of his tragedy and couldn't get past it and got stuck there. So perfection doesn't mean that things are going to go well. Your life could be going well and you could lose it because somebody else's life is going better. You could have that fresh start and mess up again. Things could be going so well and you never realized you were doing it wrong. And then your whole family could be going in one direction and in one phone call, life changes forever. And God tells Abraham to get up and go with that story behind him. Who wouldn't be afraid to get up and go? Abraham gets up and goes. And I wish I could tell you that it went really well for him. But then his past was nothing but failure. We just talked all about it. But then to squeeze his life down into an overtly reductionistic way, Abraham fails three people. He fails Lot by allowing Lot to go where Lot wanted to go and didn't stop him. This is going to start to hit close to home for some of us. He let Lot go where Lot wanted to go and all hell broke loose on Lot's life. And you wonder if Abraham sat there and said, man, I should have said no that night. Shouldn't have let him go. That's understandable. This one's not. He offered Sarah, his wife, to the Egyptian pharaoh to sleep with him so the pharaoh wouldn't kill him. Ladies, this is not cool. Men, don't do this. If you, if you don't remember anything I say today, don't sell your wives over to other people so they don't hurt you. Why do I have to? <laughs> I should never have to say that again. Shouldn't even have said it once. Man, people on the podcast who don't know me, my apologies. They're like, this place is weird. He seriously was like, all right, honey, here's the deal. We're in Egypt. She's like, yeah. He's like, do you trust me? Yeah. Sarah, mistake number one. He's like, uh, you're beautiful. Oh, shucks, she says. Oh, you think I'm beautiful? Oh, that's so cute. He's like, Here's the thing. They're going to think you're beautiful, too. Jacqueline, they're going to think you're beautiful, too. Can you just go sleep with them? Because otherwise, they're going to make you anyway and kill me, and I don't want to die. So can you? What? That's not very bright. And then maybe the most hidden failure in Abraham's life. He brings Isaac up the mountain. Everybody know this story? God tells Abraham to bring his son up the mountain and kill him. I will withhold many of my opinions on said story. Abraham does, and I want you to listen very carefully to these few verses. This is just before they go up the mountain. Then Abram said to the young men who accompanied him to the foot of the mountain, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Me and Isaac are going over there to worship, and we... We'll come again to you. 
Abraham climbs up the mountain. His son says, we have everything we need, but we don't have an animal. Like most parents, when you don't have an answer, you say what Abraham said, God will provide it. And then Abraham proceeds to tie his son down, and hold. The, and he's really about to kill him. And I read a hilarious rabbinical take on this. They said, if Isaac didn't hear God, so God says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Thank God for God. If Isaac didn't hear God, and only Abraham did, Isaac is like, why did, you just had this epiphany now not to kill me? Added, like, it took you this long? We walked up this whole mountain. Apparently, this is premeditated. You brought everything except for one thing. And now you just decide out of nowhere, like, is this some kind of cruel joke? Is it April 1st? Are you joking with me right now? But then he said, even worse, if Isaac heard God tell Abraham to stop, Isaac is like, why did he have to tell you to stop? You didn't love me enough to stop? Why did God have to tell you to? Either way, watch what happens. So Abraham returned to his young men. Notice the verse before. We will come back. And then when they come down the mountain, it says Abraham returned. No Isaac. Watch this. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at, where did Abraham live? Say it with me one more time. Sarah, Abraham's wife, lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, where did Abraham live? Where did Sarah live? Abraham got back to the tent, and his stuff was on the floor outside. <laughs> I just watched the dumbest movie ever last night. It's called He's Just Not That Into You. Netflix is hurting right now. I loved it. <laughs> but Bradley Cooper comes home, and all his stuff, and I love this. She didn't throw his stuff out. She folded it and neatly put it out. That would have annoyed me so much more. Abraham got home and Sarah was out. He never saw Isaac again. There is no text that has Abraham and Isaac together again. He, did Abraham do the right thing? Let's say yes. That's what it says in the text. Let's just leave it there. Is it possible to do the right thing in a completely unrelational way and break somebody even though you got them to the right place? Is it possible to live with your kids in such a way where you actually get them to where they need to go, but you did it in a way that was more rule-oriented than heart-oriented? So even though it was a success, it turns out to be a fatal wound. There's nothing but failure behind him. There's nothing but failure in front of him. And now God is saying to the church on the second week of Lent, get up and go. Follow me into the unknown. Oh, my gosh. I didn't mean to do that. But frozen is forever frozen to my mind. Elsa cannot be the only one. So all I'm going to do now, very quickly, 
is I'm going to preach the gospel in every story that is on that screen behind me. First, we need to know that Jesus is the true and better version of us in our past failure. His presence is in our past, and we need to become more aware of that. Jesus is the true and better Adam who didn't fail in perfection, but worshiped in chaos and imperfection in his garden. Adam failed in the perfect garden of Eden, and Jesus succeeded in the chaotic garden of Gethsemane. So even though Adam failed in perfection, Jesus failed in chaos. Jesus succeeded in chaos so that we can now have the strength to succeed in both perfection and chaos. So you can get up and go. Jesus is the true and better Cain who didn't kill us because our lives were good but offered himself to his younger brother so our life could become his. Cain killed Abel because he wanted his life. Jesus offered himself so that we could have his life. And he's not upset that our life is going better than it should. Jesus touches those failures of jealousy. And you can get up and go. Jesus is the true and better Noah, who didn't sin after the restoration needing to be covered by his children, but rose from the true flood and covered all of his children with the gospel. So if, if you have failed in front of your children and it's made you afraid to try something again, it's the covering of Jesus over his children that should give us more strength than our fear of failing in front of our children. Jesus is the true and better Tower of Babel who didn't build a tower but became the tower that was destroyed so that he could start a new building called the church to the glory of his name. And Jesus is the true and better Terah who didn't get stuck in tragedy but entered the loss and brought the promised land to it he turned Haran into the land of Canaan. Legalism wants to say, Haran, get up and get to Canaan. And Jesus says, no, no, let's just bring Canaan to Haran. There you go. Don't get out of your tragedy. Don't get out of your grief. Don't get out of your sin and guilt and shame. You can't. Jesus is going to bring the healing to you. And then you can get up and go. We always preach that, but we never preach. And this, this is some, somebody in this room brought this to my attention. I thought it was fantastic. All we do is talk about how God forgives us of our sins, but we never talk about the wake of hurt that we've left behind us. Great, God forgave you, but I still got wounds because of you. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? He says, in the same way that the serpent was lifted up on the pole, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up on a cross. Well, why was the serpent lifted up on the pole in the Torah? Because they got bit by snakes. And God said, if you look at the serpent on the pole, you'll be healed from your snake bite. But Jesus is now the serpent on the pole. So Jesus has to do something a little bit better than the serpent. Amen? And what I believe we see here is that Jesus is saying, when you saw the serpent on the pole, you were healed from your wound. 
But when you look at me on the cross, you won't just be healed of your wound, but your healing will begin to heal those you've wounded. This is going to work in both directions. He's not just the true and better us in our failure, but he's also the true and better those whom we have failed. Jesus is the true and better lot who wasn't rescued from judgment, but was the only one who remained so everyone else in the city could be saved. Lot got to leave and everyone else died. In the new gospel, Jesus is the only one who stays so everyone else can leave. Jesus is the true and better Sarah, not forced to offer the body to preserve her husband, but offered us his body because he is our true husband. Abraham hid behind his wife, who he should have been protecting. Get the podcast from Wednesday night. Jesus, like the true husband, stood in front of us and said, my body will be offered. I'll never ask you to offer yours. And then Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was brought to the full death. No one said, stop, stop. But he did this not to show us the negativity of the Father, but to show us his perfect unity with the Father. So for every parent who did the right things but still managed to break a child, Jesus is not just the true and better version of you to heal you from doing that, but he's also the true and better son who had to endure wrath but still stayed in good relationship with the Father. He doesn't just heal you. He also heals those whom you've injured. Where does this all culminate? Nicodemus shows up hiding, and then he has this encounter about being born again. And at the very end of the gospel, of the very end of the last gospel, it says this. After Jesus died on the cross. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly hiding for fear of the Jews publicly asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. He brings 75 pounds of spices to publicly anoint the dead body of Jesus. He, they both have come out of hiding. I think it's interesting that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of aloes and Abraham was 75 years old when he was called out because they're both having an Abraham experience. You're going to fail again, but come out anyway because the love of God, and this is just the simplest thing I could tell you, the love of God is strong enough to not just heal you, but also heal the train of carnage behind you. That's what he's offering us. There is no call to action here. I just wanted to tell you that. That whatever, put yourself in the story. These are Bible characters, but they're not there because these are the only times that Jesus does this. He's always the true and better version of you that failed. And he's always the true and better version of those you have failed. And as long as Jesus remains the center of our narratives, 
as long as we become born again, and I'm selling you this right now, every one of you needs to become born again again. This isn't an altar call. This is the life of the Christian is always being born anew. In the waters of baptism and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's only in the Spirit that all things are made new. Every one of us in this room desperately needs the healing agent that is the Holy Spirit on our life. We need it on our lives. We need it on our future. We need it on those we have hurt. We need it on those we will hurt. Yes, we need to become better. Yes, we need to grow. But there's still going to be mess-ups. There's still going to be trip-ups. We're still going to hurt people. And we need to be born again and again and again and again and again until Jesus comes and literally restores it all, and then no one will need to be born again again. But now, we don't go back. We, we don't decide, I'm not going to try again. We keep trying knowing we'll keep tripping. And as long as we're repentive of what we've done wrong and acknowledge that, acknowledge that when I say I'm sorry, when I have done something wrong, and this is, I'm telling you what I do. When I've done something wrong and I finally come clean and I say I'm sorry, it takes so much for my gross, disgusting ego to do that. It takes so much for me to say, I was wrong, I'll admit it. I gave an answer and it wasn't right, I just didn't want to say I don't know. Or I'm nasty at home, can you believe it? Or something like that. By the time I say I'm sorry, it took me so much because I'm so rotten to say I'm sorry that my body immediately expects the person I've hurt to immediately be better because it took me so much effort to say sorry, why aren't you coming around now? Even though it might take you forever to say sorry, everybody else needs the space to heal. They don't need to turn it around because you just turned it around. If you really turned it around, you'll give them all the space they need to turn it around. And that's the gospel life. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.